This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is John Scalzi, whose latest novel is titled Starter Villain. There are several novels. What is the total number of your science fiction novels at this point? I think 17 novels, uh, a whole bunch of novellas and short stories, and then additional like 15 or 16 nonfiction books as well. You have audio books, you have chat books, and of course, then there's your blog. Right, exactly. I mean, it is difficult to talk about how much I've written because that's sort of also, it's not just my job, it's my hobby. The blog has been uh, running for 25 years as of September 13th which is, you know, inconceivable. I think I've probably written three or four million words on the blog, plus all the novels, plus the nonfiction books, plus the various magazines and newspapers that I've written for over over time. It just piles up and I pity whatever graduate student decides to do a thesis on me. John Scalzi, before we go into your career, which I really would like to now that I've got you here, uh, let's talk a little about Starter Villain. As with several of your works, it's a comic novel with science fiction overtones, also, I guess, a little bit of noir overtones. What struck me in reading the book is that you seem to have predicted something, because you wrote this probably a year, year and a half ago, about the idiocy of billionaires. Uh, (laughs) It's like you were writing about Elon Musk before Elon Musk revealed himself truly to be. So I want to go back and talk about the origins of this book. Did it start by you're just writing and then suddenly you thought idea and went with it? Did it start with the idea of villains? How did it begin? Well, it started two ways. One, the Kaiju Preservation Society, which was my previous book, had just come out and had been pretty well received. Uh, and we wanted to sort of continue that wave of uh, goodwill from readers. About simultaneously, I started thinking about James Bond villains, right? Specifically, I mean, they're very tropey at this point. Everybody knows a James Bond villain has a cat lives on a volcano island, has a plan to ruin the world, all of these sorts of things. And what I'm interested in is less about satirizing these tropes so much as it is looking to see how these tropes would actually work in real life. You know, as one example, why would a, you know, supervillain have a volcano lair? What what possibly uh, would be the advantage to having one of those, especially in a world where it being remote means nothing when there is 24-hour satellite observation, right? You can't, you can't hide your supervillainy anymore. And so the answer to that is unlimited geothermal power, right? To, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you start going more with that about what it is, the practical aspects of being a supervillain and how you would actually go about being a supervillain uh, in the modern age. And so I just kept building that out. And as it turns out, the more that you build that out, uh, the more it just looks like our recent crop of tech billionaires. Right. It wasn't intentional per se, but there are definitely a lot of lines of consanguinity there. Now, to answer your question about, you know, 
predicting about the billionaires. I've written about billionaires before. They show up in um, the Kaiju Preservation Society. Uh, I have a series of novellas uh, for Audible called the Dispatcher series, the most recent of which also sort of uh, essays billionaires and, and their bad behavior. So it has been something that has kind of been on my mind recently, not the least of which is because we are living in a new Gilded Age. Uh, and quite literally, the uh, the inequality economically is on par with what we actually call the Gilded Age of the 1880s and 1890s. And so it is a ripe subject to, to examine, not in a I'm going to stand on a set soapbox and whack you over the head with it uh, sort of way, because that, for me, at least gets boring very quickly, but absolutely in this is something that we all recognize and I can work with, even as I'm, I'm playing with the tropes and hopefully subverting them as well. Two questions. First, had this been in your mind for a long time, going back to Blofeld and figuring it out? Or was there a particular trigger that made you go, hey, this has never really been explored? Well, I can't even say that it hasn't been explored because, of course, obviously there have been sure. lots of uh, lots of examples of people playing with the James Bond villain trope, uh, trope before. Uh, the Incredibles with uh, Brad Bird as the director and writer of that. Uh, and then obviously Austin Powers, where they had, you know, they literally had Dr. Evil, you know, it's like one million dollars. Yeah, you know, that yeah sort but of you're going in the other direction, trying to figure out how it would really happen. Yeah. Well, and but that's the, you know, and that's kind of my shtick though, right? You know, it's the, uh, like with the Kaiju Preservation Society, the book before that, the Kaiju are big monsters and they stomp around. And, and I wanted to think about, well, what if uh, instead of having them just stomping around on our world, we went to theirs, you know, or the book Red Shirts where I had sure. characters <laughs> who were doomed uh, because they were wearing a red shirt, but then they realized that they were doomed and they under, they understood that they were basically caught in bad TV and, you know, tried to change their fate with it. It's really fun as a writer just to look at all of the cultural ticks and tropes that we take for granted that we all use as sort of shorthand and sort of ask why, why are they shorthand? What is it about them that has made them so successful that we could just say Blofeld and everybody knows what we're talking about. And don't those tropes, don't those ideas deserve interrogation in an entertaining way, hopefully that sort of just kind of cracks them open and says, well, why is this uh, the way it is and how could we actually make something that is ridiculous, a volcano layer, have some sort of relevance and plausibility uh, in a real world. And that's the and that's fun for me. That's something I just really, really enjoy doing. Well, sure. But had it been in the back of your mind that this was an area you were going to, or was there something that said to you, maybe Donald Trump looking like a cartoon villain that said <laughs> that said to you, "Hey, what about this?" No, I mean for me, it really was uh, a thing of when we decided that we wanted to do another book that was in contemporary time, you know, and looking at uh, tropes. It had been something that I'd been thinking about, like I said, because I had been saying billionaires before, and the idea of billionaires as you know supervillains is is not particularly new, but. 
because it had been it had been in my mind for a while because of what I was writing. I wasn't thinking about it in a grand sort of scope of things, uh, you know, back for the very first time uh, that I watched, you know, watched Dr. No or any of the James Bond movies. But as with so many things in our culture, it just accumulates over time. You think about it and you know that you recognize it. Um, so that when it was time, there's like, well, what else can we play with? We we played with big monsters. We've played with doomed cast members. What else is there? And and quite honestly, the idea of playing with supervillains is is kind of a fun thing to do. And I've even done it a little bit before directly. I had a short story that was called Denise Jones, uh, superhero Booker, and then another short story that was. Uh, an insurance claims adjuster for supervillains, right? Uh, um, okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it's been bouncing around. So it's been bouncing around, and I wrote that about like 10, 15 years ago. But so, yeah, no, these things have been uh, have been there, but they haven't been on the forefront of my consciousness. But like I said, when we were like, let's do another book that is having fun with, with tropes, that was the one that sort of just popped up in my mind. I had no idea that, you know, billionaires – uh, and their bad behavior would become a a huge topic in 2023. But I'm awfully glad it is because it makes me look like I planned this. Yeah, that, that was my thought in reading this. I'm going, wait, that's Elon Musk. That's Mark <laughs> Zuckerberg. That's David Zaslav. That's all of those people who are now completely out of control. And then, of course, you have to find your hero, which makes sense that it would be an outsider coming into this. Sure. At one point, you suddenly decide to bring in a science fiction element. Um, I don't even know if we should go in that direction too far, but was that in your mind? Because the first X number of pages, it's not there at all. Right. Well, and that's the whole thing. You want to get people sort of situated in a world, uh, someplace that they know and they feel comfortable with. Uh, so they're like, okay, I understand this setting. I know what's going on. This is something I can be with, even if they are not science fiction fans, so that when you make that first left turn, right, that you have grounded them enough in the real world that that first left turn kind of feels a little bit not shocking, but unexpected and kind of fun. And then the sort of, okay, now things are really going to get weird now. And that's fun for me too. The whole idea of setting things up so that people are comfortable. It's like on a roller coaster. The first, you know, a couple of minutes are just going slow and then going up, 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 up that hill. Uh, And then once you've got them and there's no turning back, you know, down the chute they go, right? Same sort of thing. But I think that's really important, especially when you're doing work that is taking place in current and contemporary time. You want to make it seem that what is going on in the book, that our, fan, that our fantastical elements um, aren't just like popping in out of nowhere. When that first science fictional reveal happens and you go back and you read all the interactions that our main character has had uh, with the, the character gets revealed, all of a sudden it all makes sense uh, and you're like, why Why wasn't I aware of that when I started out? Um, and that's how it should be. It should be something that feels like it's earned, not just like all of a sudden the aliens come. 
John Scalzi, when you're writing these, what is your outline? Do you have an outline or do you just kind of have a plan that veers off in different directions? Boy, you make me sound so much more organized than I am. I I am very much of the school of sit down and find out what's happening as you write it. So I knew basic elements of, of this story and I know basic elements of other stories when I start off, right? Um, I know who the protagonist is. Uh, I know the general shape of the story, uh, where I want it to go. Uh, but I have no idea how I'm going to get there. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that happens in the middle just comes happens because I sit down and I start writing. So uh, I don't outline um, and I don't overthink it too much before, before I begin. And this fills some writers I know with absolute terror. There are some writers I know who absolutely do a lot of outlining. And that is great because that is their process. That is the thing that works for them, right? Um, but for me, uh, if I did a whole lot of uh, outlining for fiction, specifically nonfiction, I do outlining, but for uh, fiction, if I did a whole lot of outlining, uh, then when I got to the writing, it would be kind of boring for me because I already know what's going to happen. So for me, a lot of a lot of that story is you know, developed in the, in the writing, both for starter villain and for previous books. And often no one is more surprised with how the story twists and turns uh, than I am. My brain is usually about five steps ahead of where I am. So when I get there, I'm like, oh, well, thank you, subconscious brain for putting in all that seemed extraneous information at the beginning, uh, because now I can use it to tie everything together. Um, but um, that's, that's how I do it. And uh, again, that's the process that's worked for me. I don't necessarily recommend it for everybody, but I'm glad that uh, it ha happens to work for me because that's what makes it interesting for me as a, a writer that I get to see it almost as a reader at the same time. Well, I, I found in talking to novelists, a lot of them kind of work that way uh, because you never know where it's going to go. And I've talked to mystery writers who actually change the villain. Because they suddenly realize the villain, this other person, makes more sense as the murderer. Sure, sure. Well, what is the saying that uh, Agatha Christie made it so that anybody could be the murderer, and then she decided as she was writing who it was going to be, which I think is makes makes amazing sense, right? That is that is something that would be for me just awesome, and I think that that is. I think it's reasonable because that's part of uncovering the story. There are things that happen or there are things that you think are going to happen that uh, just end up being thrown aside because the needs of making the story the best possible story you could make have a larger value than writing the story that you thought you were going to write. My late partner on the radio show, Dick Lupoff, used to say that writing, a lot of writing is about discovery, about yeah. finding out something and suddenly going, there it is. Yeah. In terms of that, you therefore ne didn't necessarily know at the end what the end would be or how it would work out. But as you're writing, suddenly, wham, something comes out and you go, I'm going to use that. And then you get to the end. Right. Well, and, and like I said, a lot of the a lot of the, the writing for me is in the early parts of the book, you put in a lot of information, you put in a lot of plot, you put in all, you know, some characters uh, and you give yourself basically you you put everything on Chekhov's mantle. Right. All these toys 
Um, and then in the second half of the book, you start playing with them. And some of them make sense and some of them don't. And that's where editing comes in because you can retroactively remove things from the mantle uh, so that uh, the readers never know that they were there in the first place. But the more options you give yourself at the beginning, uh, the more places your your story can go and the more surprising the story can be, not just for readers, obviously, but for you as well. You want to find the right story. You want to discover what is the right uh, course of action, or at least I do. Like I said, there are some people who get this all figured out in the in the uh, the outlining process, and that's what works for them. And I wish them nothing but joy, but that's just not how I do it. Uh, in terms of research, uh, where does the research come in for you? As you're working, you suddenly go, wait, I need to know about X, Y, and Z, and you look it up, or do you have some idea at the beginning I mean, I don't know, for instance, in Starter Villain, I don't know if any research needed to be done on the tech, but maybe some did. Well, the one of the things that I always do with, particularly with contemporary technology, is you want to get as much of that as possible correct, right? Right. Because if you don't get that right, um, you'll throw people out. Um, so like, for example, there's one scene where they're talking about a a machine that basically seeds seeds rain, rain clouds so that it will right. so that it will rain. Um, that technology is technology that actually exists, right? Um, it is a thing that has uh, well established uh, and that it is able to be replicated and all that sort of stuff. I'm not making that out of whole cloth. That is something that exists. So that when you take that next step of saying, and also this technology can be used for nefarious purposes, then you've already gotten the plausible grounding for this technology, and then you, and then you move forward. And that's I think a really important element for my science fiction, at least, is you get the science that we already know as correctly as you can, and not only with the science, because again, if you're working in contemporary in a contemporary setting, you have to get the other stuff right. Um, so a lot of my research ends up just going to Google and finding out, for example, what is the closest private airport to Barrington, Illinois, right? You know, which <laughs> sounds like, is, is this really something you need to do? And the answer is yes, because a small number of people are going to live, who read the book are going to live in Barrington, you know, and will know these places. And in fact, you know, the book starts in, in a small uh, suburb of Chicago called Barrington, and all the landmarks that that he passes or that he talks about um, in the first few chapters of the book actually exist in that town. The bar that uh, he wants to buy, it's not a spoiler to mention that that's the uh, thing begins, Charlie, our protagonist, is looking to buy a bar. That bar actually exists, and at the time that I was writing it, it was for sale. And the amount that it was up for sale is the amount that he's asking from the bank, right? Um, right. So again, so that all the people who are from that area will be like, oh my God, he's he knows our area. This all, this all makes sense. And once you've established all of that, just by going to the internet, getting that in in a uh, verifiable way, don't just ask ChatGPT anything because ChatGPT will lie to you. Lying right. liar to ChatGPT. 
but once you can verify it, put it in. It's super easy to do, and it gives a verisimilitude uh, to to the writing that, again, when you start off on taking your flights of fantasy, will absolutely 100% make sense to, to the readers. They have already bought into your universe at that point. Taking them some unimaginable place uh, is trivial at that point. And the same with the fictional island of St. Genevieve, right. the volcanic lair. Right. The fictional island of St. Genevieve, again, not a spoiler for this. There is, in the spot where I had St. Genevieve, there is an active volcano. Oh, it wow. under the waves. And it creates a uh, phenomenon uh, that is called, basically, it's called Kicking Jenny, right? Where the water is choppy and bubbly and all that sort of stuff because there's a volcano under the waves. So basically what I did was I took an actual feature of geography and I just put an island on top of it. But for another several, you know, million years of, you know, magma coming out of this fissure uh, underneath the sea, there would be an island there. And that's uh, that would be St. Genevieve, which is the French version of Jennifer, which is, you know, Kick and Jenny is the name of the is the feature. And on top of that, you've also got Lake Como and you've got the history of St. Genevieve and Lake Como. I've been there. Yeah. And you accurate, I don't know if you have, but it's pretty accurate. Yeah. It's it's the same memory I have. For the history of St. Genevieve, you incorporate material that actually exists. So for the first few pages before I find out this is the volcanic lair, I'm mm-hmm. thinking this could be a real island. That and that, again, that's the whole point. You make it sound as realistic as possible, as plausible as possible. So that when you take that, like I said, take that left turn, people are are with you. People read science fiction um, and people read fiction generally because they want to believe. They want to get into the story. They want to go to that world, whether that world is on Earth right now or if it's in space in another galaxy. They want to be there. And your job as an author is to help them. Um, And ironically, the closer that you hew to the real world, the more research you do have to do, right? Because if I write, like I wrote a, a series of books called the Interdependency Books, right? They take place at least 1,500 years in the future. It doesn't matter in one way or another, the sort of technology that I make up for 1,500 years in the future, because nobody alive today is going to be able to check my math, right? None of us are going to be around for that. So I can, you know, again, getting the science right now and then just going from there, whatever. But if I'm talking to get, like I said, if I'm talking about Barrington, if I'm talking about Lake Como, if I'm talking about Bellagio, if I'm talking about any place that anybody has ever been and exists and lives in right now, then you want to get it right. And like I said, 30 years ago, this would have been a real challenge um, because the information infrastructure that we have now just literally didn't exist. I mean, uh, so much of my research, for example, again, with Barrington, but also with Lake Como, was literally going to Google Maps, pulling down the the walkable map sort of thing and just walking through the, the cities through my computer. The fact that I'm able to do that now, uh, whereas uh, 30 years ago, um, I would have to like go try to find a book in the library and look at pictures and try to find maps and all of that sort of stuff. 
or try to rationalize to my wife why I absolutely had to go to Lake Como in Italy for <laughs> research, right? And I don't know that that would fly unless I, I brought her with me on a vacation. But uh, but as far as it goes, being able to do that just by going to Google Maps or any other sort of similar thing and just literally being virtually being able to walk the streets is is so very, very useful. John Scalzi, what you're describing actually is how I did my own research for these interviews. I used to sometimes have to go to the library and sit down sure. if I was going to get an interview. The, the difference, of course, is that nobody else would do that. So I kind of had a edge on research. You had, you had an advantage because you actually would would do some research on your subject. And read the books. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, no, and I, and I get it. I mean, it's the, it's the thing of, and I think it's incumbent on, on, on writers now that since it is as easy as it is now to get things right, you should actually make the effort to get the things that we know right, you know, uh, as correct, uh, right as possible. It is the, the extreme irony that we live in an age of such huge access to information and also just being overwhelmed by so much disinformation. Um, Correct. And, and also just the, the information literacy uh, it being such a, a, an issue uh, today. Now, I mean, I feel like you and I probably had some advantages because we're journalists or where I used to be a journalist. My first job out of college was working um, at the Fresno Bee newspaper in California. And I worked there for several years and I did other journalism off and on uh, well into this century. Um, so to be able to, so having that background of knowing uh, that you need to get your facts right, knowing where to get your facts right. I mean, we talk about, um, you know, the fact that I don't have to go to the library right now, but the fact that libraries existed and that we knew that how to, how to work them, that they continue to exist is incredibly important because even now on the internet, you can't necessarily find everything. And sometimes you've got to go to the library and say, can you get me an interlibrary loan? And of course, the librarians are super happy to do that because they're awesome. But fundamentally, we know how to do this. And one of my great wishes as, as a human and as a writer is that more people would indulge in information literacy, that we could teach them more about that. And I think in a small way, part of what I'm doing with ribbing like the uh, cult of billionaires in, in this book and some other stuff that I did is a way of, you know, fighting back against the idea that all the billionaires clearly know what they're doing. They're the smartest people in the room uh, because otherwise, how, why would, why, how did they get to be billionaires if they weren't the smartest people in the room? And, you know, as we're discovering, uh, no, they're not the smartest people in the world. They're just the ones that have the most money and having a lot of money covers up a lot of deficits uh, in character, intelligence, long-term planning and personality uh, for a very long time, but sooner or later, we are all revealed as who we are. And boy, are a lot of these billionaires wanting. Ross Perot was one of the earliest signs of that, because I remember from the Ken Follett book, he was a hero, and then he ran for president, and he's an idiot. I, I found that really fascinating because there was so much that was going on. So H. Ross Perot, you know, fictionalized in, you know, uh, the Ken Follett book uh, and really smart guy. There are the things, you know, um, and, then, and then the things yeah. you are given credit for. 
which you don't necessarily know. And the problem with all with politics, particularly retail politics on, on the presidential level, is so much of that is being able just to think on your feet and being able, when you don't know something, to find a way to make it either sound like you know or that you know that people will be able to find out for you. And there's a tragic side of that as well. H. Rosh Perot's running mate, James Stockdale, genuine American hero, genuinely thoughtful person, genuinely intelligent fellow. And of course, he went up there on the stage. And one of the things that we learned that he was not was a really good extemporaneous public speaker. That's fine. You know, we don't necessarily need our nation's leaders to be, you know, great off the cuff. But when you go up on a stage and and do that, um, that is what they are expecting. It's that whole thing of when John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon uh, debated for the first time, uh, the people who listened to the debate on the radio thought that Nixon won that debate. Everybody who saw it on TV was like, John F. Kennedy kicked his butt. And that's the power of perception. And that's the power of perception for billionaires and celebrities and all those other people that we idolize and valorize, that we want them to be the smartest people in the room. We give them so much credit for being good or being kind or being intelligent or having sense. And you know, the day-to-day crucible of reality uh, reveals us what we are, whether we like it or not. Well, I remember years ago, um, Dick and I did a lot of interviews with celebrity authors, and someone said to me, how come you fine with them? And I said, well, when I walk in, I'm realizing they go to the bathroom, they eat, they sleep, they do everything everybody else does. And once you realize that, you realize there are good people and not so good people, and there are heroes, but everybody is human. Yeah, this is very much very similar to my experience. My job at the Fresno Bee, I was a I was a film critic and, you know, columnist about right. uh, entertainment. And so I would literally interview filmmakers and movie stars and directors and screenwriters and very very quickly you get over the idea that celebrities are any different than the rest of us except that they are generally speaking much much prettier and often much much richer too. Yes. In a lot of cases, just simply a lot luckier. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you can always, that you should always be factoring in when you think about celebrities or anyone who is successful, and I would include myself in this definitely, is the element of luck. I have always been very, very clear with people. You're like, how did you become, because I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I've won awards, blah, 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 blah. And and they're like, how did you do it? What was it that happened? And I was like, well, I'm good at what I do. I am diligent about doing it, and I'm also incredibly lucky, right? My very first book, Old Man's War, basically came out in the right place at the right time to just explode, right? If it had come out a year earlier or a year later, who would say? But at the time it came out, it was very successful. And that paved the way for the rest of my career. And so I make the point of, I got lucky. And people are like, well, no, no. It's, it, they, they feel like I'm being modest, right? They're like, no, no, you know, I mean, you're really good at what you're doing. I was like, I didn't say I wasn't good at what I do. I am good at what I do. But also, I was in the right place at the right time. Sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. We were talking about Starterville, where it feels like this book was written for this exact moment, right? I cannot claim to be you know, a prognosticator of the future. I didn't know that uh, Elon Musk would destroy the former Twitter 
to such a degree that he did and expose himself as a questionable human being to the extent that he has. But in as much as he did, that's great for me. I mean, I absolutely, I got a hundred percent lucky uh, with him setting himself and poor Twitter on fire. John Scalzi, let's go back into your career. Uh, according to, I guess, Wikipedia and your own <laughs> webpage, you became a science fiction writer by flipping a coin that you didn't know whether to write mysteries or science fiction. I, I mean, I sort of get that. But on the other hand, I'm thinking you were eventually going to be attracted to what you're attracted to. Well, but that's the thing is, is that I was attracted to both. I mean, I want to be clear that I'm in many ways an accidental novelist. I wanted to be a journalist all my life. My ideal job coming out of college was I was going to I was going to write movie reviews and then I was going to write opinion columns and I would do that for 50 years and I would win a Pulitzer and criticism and you know all of that sort of stuff and then unfortunately journalism became a much a much rockier field on which to sort of build a build a career and I moved over to tech I worked at AOL for a number of years and then I went freelance and the reason I started writing novels at all is I was going to go back to my 10th high school year, 10th year high school reunion, and I knew they would ask me if I had written a novel. So I made sure that I wrote a novel before I went back to my high school reunion so that when they said, yeah, you know, I could say, yes, I absolutely did. And that was the one that I flipped the coin on. So my reading habits weren't just only science fiction. I read um, you know, a lot of Carl Hayas, and I wrote a, wrote a lot, uh, read a lot of Elmore Leonard. I read a lot of... Gregory MacDonald, who did the Fletch books, um, those were as influential to me as a writer as Robert Heinlein or uh, Ray Bradbury or Ursula uh, K. Le Guin. And then also uh, because I was a film critic, right? You know, the great screenwriters, Ben Hecht, uh, William Goldman, Elaine May, uh, Nora Ephron. Um, those people were as important to me as well. I mean, I don't want to say, you know, uh, that science fiction wasn't or isn't important because obviously it is, but it was not the singular focus of my reading when I was young. And it was not necessarily where I expected my career to go. When my first novel, the first published novel, Old Man's War was sold uh, to Tor Books, I remember turning to my wife and being like, so here's what's going to happen. I'll write a novel every couple of years and it'll come out and it'll do okay. And then but I'm going to keep my day job, which was doing at that time freelance writing and doing marketing for uh, financial services and uh, tech companies. And then the first book took off and the other books have done uh, very well since as well. Uh, and it became a, a thing that I accidentally became a novelist. And once you start writing, if you are successful, they will want you to keep writing in that genre and they will continue to give you money to do it. And, you know, since I had a mortgage and a child and pets, you know, and bills, then I was happy to do it. And I love science fiction. Again, I don't want to make it sound like it's not important to me, but it really was one of those things that your first book is a hit. Guess what they want you to do? More of the same. And I was like, you mean you will pay me money to write these things and I don't have to do anything else? Sign me up. But at the same time, of course, I guess if you get an idea for something that doesn't quite fit the genre, 
you'll make an attempt at it, I would think, and you oh, have. absolutely. I've well, well. Here's the, there's two ways to answer that. The first is um, if I want to write something that's not science fiction, I have you know, and I have. I've written a lot of uh, nonfiction books. Then I have leave to do that as long as I you know turn on the books that I have under contract. But the other thing is one of the great things about science fiction is that it is an incredibly generous genre. You can put other genres inside of it. I have, I have, you know, uh, crime thrillers that I have written in science fiction, my lock-in series, lock-in and head on, my dispatcher series, uh, which takes place in the great American noir town of Chicago. Again, they're all, you know, they're all crime thrillers and I get to write them and they also happen to be in science fiction. I get to write comedy and humor in science fiction. Red Shirts, Kaiju uh, Preservation Society, and to some extent, Starter Villain as well, are all meant to be funny books. And I can do them within the context of science fiction as well. I've even written a horror novella in the context of science fiction, one called The God Engines. Don't read it if you're sad. So I've been very fortunate that I picked the genre in, that allows me to do uh, as much as I want to and am interested in, in basically any other genre as well. So good for me. <laughs> okay, here's a question out of kind of out of thin air that I was thinking about. Uh, for mysteries, people now are a little bit stuck in the fact that there's so much surveillance, so many cell phones, mm -hmm. people can't disappear. There's so much you can't do. And I'm wondering if as opposed to say the nineties or even the eighties yeah, uh, or back to the thirties. I'm wondering if setting a mystery in a science fiction world almost becomes easier because you get to set the parameters of what's available and what's not. I think that's true. But I also think that uh, technology you know, takes away, but also technology gives, right? It is trivial to spoof your phone, to make it look like, it's somewhere else than where it is. Uh, it is trivial to uh, find ways to uh, confound uh, cameras and not only do that, but to make the cameras your ally in uh, setting up other people. All the things that are recorded, uh, that are recording can be hacked. Uh, our ability to place false information into data is better than it has ever, ever been. The fact that our CGI is uh, photorealistic at this point means that you, you know, uh, that the, the, the many decades of snapping a picture and having it be authoritatively the truth are now completely gone. So yes, you can't write a uh, mystery uh, like you could in the 80s where everybody didn't have, a, you know, a tracker on them at all times we, we, that we right, do with phones yeah. or, you know, that they don't, didn't have access to information or any of that sort of stuff. Um, but at the same point, you could not have written in the 1980s, the murder mystery that you could write now. And that's, you know, and that's the, that's the fun of it is that the parameters are always changing, Right. And you work with the parameters that you have. Or in the case of science fiction, you get to set up the parameters that you have. But even then, you absolutely 100% have to play by your own rules. No matter, what you, no matter how you set, set up the card game, if you don't play fair, you're going to lose the readers. And so for me, the, the fact that 
now we do have that constant surveillance. We do have that constant tracking. We do have, you know, the way to let people know where we are all the time so that we can't just disappear doesn't make it impossible to write those stories. It just makes it uh, means that you're writing a different story. John Scalzi, when you're working on science fiction, you have to create a believable world in depth so that people know there's a history to it. We've seen it done well by Tolkien or by Frank Herbert. We've also seen it done very badly in so many places, including television. Does that history of having had to do that do you think that's one of the reasons that you can create verisimilitude in a modern novel like Start a Villain? I mean, for me, the question has always been, how much information do you need when you were doing the world building? Not only how much information do you need on the page, but how much information do you need like in a general sense? Neil Gaiman has said, and he's correct, that a writer always has more information about the world um, than gets, gets put on the page. You know, the thing is, it's easy to criticize shoddy world building, and I encourage people to do that in many ways. Uh, but the also the thing is, sometimes the shoddy world building uh, is by design, um, that that is actually part of the story element itself. And sometimes it just simply doesn't matter. Like you were, you were talking about film and TV and how the world building is makes no sense. I was actually just talking last night with uh, my wife, about a 1980s movie that's called Streets of Fire, right? Uh, directed by Walter Hill, uh, stars, stars Michael Pere, Diane Ladd, uh, and a, a very young Willem Dafoe, right? Um, the world building is absolutely atrocious, right? Nothing about that world makes any sense at all if you think about it for more than five minutes. Um, and it literally doesn't matter, right? Because... The whole design of the story and of the movie is it's created this very sort of little tiny bottle universe where, uh, you know, rock and roll bands are, you know, part of the future and everybody breaks out into a Jim, Jim Steinman song all of a sudden. Um, and it's and, and they're all wearing coveralls and it's ridiculous. And it doesn't matter one whit because they're everybody buys in on the artifice. So sometimes that terrible world building is just, uh, you know, aside the point for whatever that particular story is. My wife absolutely 100% loves Streets of Fire. She showed it to our daughter. My daughter loves it, which blows my mind because, you know, she was she's a child of the 21st century. But she's like, no, that's great. I'm like, but don't you see? It doesn't make sense. And they're like, we don't care. That's something you have to acknowledge when uh, sometimes looking at bad world building. Sometimes bad world building doesn't matter because it's not on point for what that story is trying to tell. John Scalzi, uh, speaking of world building, uh, you were creative consultant on on a Stargate series. Uh, did that involve world building? It did. And it's kind of in a very interesting way. So I was part of the Stargate Universe series, which ran for two seasons, and the best way to describe what I did as creative consultant is in science fiction, you'll go to a science fiction convention and they'll do like a panel on Stargate or a panel on Star Trek or Star Wars. And some guy will, during the questionnaire and answer period, would go 
they'll go up and say, in the second season, episode three, you had this happen, but clearly in episode 10, season one, that something else happened that clearly shows that that couldn't have happened in episode three, season two. So I'm wondering what it's like to be a failure, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so my job was to be that guy before that guy could be that guy. They would send me the scripts and I would look through them and be like, okay, here's the thing that you, you need to be thinking about because if you do this, the nerds will come for you. Um, so we did that with, you know, science. Uh, we did that with some of the character notes. Uh, we did that with, um, you know, just very basic things. And, and one of the concepts, for example, with Stargate Universe, and this will show you just how kind of nitpicky the world building had to be. The idea of the Stargate Universe series was a bunch of characters get transported onto the spaceship, which is literally half a galaxy away, right? It is millions and millions and millions and millions of light years away. Um, there's really no way to get back and forth. All they have is what they've brought with them, right? Right. So in some of the early, uh, so in, in some of the early scripts, uh, they have people going bang, 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 just shooting all over the place. And I'm the guy who has to like push up the glasses up his nose and is like, you realize you don't get those bullets back, right? Like there's no reloading. Like once those bullets are gone, they're gone. So if you want to blow your entire bullet, you know, budget in the first couple of episodes, do that, but just be aware of that for future episodes. Or um, they were doing the thing where they were doing the red shirt thing where like someone would go down the hall and it would explode and they would die. And I was like, you have 30 people in your cast, right? If you kill off one or two of them every episode, by the end of the season, you're going to have nobody left. And so that is why if you watch Stargate Universe, very few people die, but a lot of them get seriously maimed. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's probably, it might be bad for that. It's got to be worse for the people doing Strange New Worlds for Star Trek because oh. there are so many more nerds. They're they're doing a really interesting job. They're doing a really interesting job of saying, we know this is what the canon is. You know, they're good at bowing to it, but not being too hewn to it. Uh, but the other thing is that we are aware at this point because of the Star Trek movies and because of what has done happened in other series, that there's a whole lot of time slippage in the Star Trek universe. They now have a, you know, a canonical temporal crimes unit basically um yes so the fact that they have that means that they are now in a position where they don't have to uh be so rigid about the canon that it won't work anymore um that they are able to do canonical events more as like easter eggs uh than anything else but it's been really interesting particularly in the last 10 15 years the whole idea of multiverses and canon and everything else has become so well understood that in the most recent animated Spider-Man movie um, across the Spider-Verse, that they actually play with that trope. They talk about canonical events as relate to the spider people. And they just assume that everybody knows what they're talking about. And by and large, they're right. And that's really cool for uh, science fiction writers because it gives us a lot more latitude, but it also means that this thing as a trope is at the point where it's so overused that we have to actually be careful that we don't abuse the goodwill of our readers uh, and just plow it into the ground. After a while, it becomes cheating. 
Yeah, I mean, yes, it becomes cheating, but it's not even about cheating. It just becomes boring. And that's the bigger crime. Because what we do at the end of the day is entertainment. I mean, we can do lots and lots of things in our writing, but we have to keep them turning the page or we have to keep them tuned in until the end of the episode, or we have to you know, make sure that they don't leave the movie theater. We have to amuse them. And if we just take this trope and burn it into the ground, they're not going to be, they're not going to be entertained. And that's uh, going to be, on, that's going to be on us. And it's not, it's not their fault that we have just relied on something that they know already and are bored with. John Scalzi, how did you get involved with Love, Death and Robots? I got involved in that the the traditional way, uh, which is that one of the producers liked my stuff and wanted to option it. So I had personally very, very little to do with it. My, uh, my manager was like, uh, these folks from Netflix are doing this animated thing. They want to buy some short stories. And I was like, I was never thinking I was going to sell those short stories for TV anyway. Sure, let's do that. And I went out and I met uh, Tim Miller, who is the one of the producers, along with David Fincher uh, of Love, Death and Robots. And we hit it off. And, you know, I sent him another short story just for fun so that he could read it. And he bought that one as well. And as experiences in film and TV go, it's one of the best experiences I've ever had because Tim Miller and the rest of the folks at Blur are really good at keeping the the writers of the stories uh, in the loop. And they were like, here's the progress that we're making. Hey, what do you think about this? All of that sort of stuff. Um, so I never felt like they were just like, here's your money, go away, right? So when it came to, the first season came out and came to the second season, I actually wrote, I wrote the scripts for the stuff that came out in, in the second and third season. Uh, and that was kind of a fun experience as well. So I've been thrilled actually with the way that Love, Death, and Robots has come across, not only just because the series itself is, um, I think, just fantastic beyond my stuff. Everything about it has just been just so much thought and effort goes into it. It's great. But also, I mean, as someone who is not on day-to-day in uh, Los Angeles, it really is one of the best and most respectful ways that I've been treated ever and as a, as a result of that, you know, uh, I'm happy to, you know, do stuff with them and to, you know, be really proud of the, the work that they do. Everybody should have as positive an experience working in film and television with an adaptation of their work uh, as I have had with the folks at Love, Death and Robots. John Scalzi, are you now a member of WGA? I am not because the scripts that I've written there's there's a very complicated formula about how many points is, uh, counts and so on and so forth, and I don't have, have enough points. That said, one of the things, that because as we're, as we're talking right now, there's still a strike going on, one of the things that was very important to me with all the stuff that I'm doing is making sure that, one, I support the writers who are on strike, and two, that I don't accidentally or intentionally um, cross any picket lines because you just don't do that. You don't cross picket lines, uh, especially for writers. You know, writers who are striking right. yeah. for basic, you know, income and residuals and and all of that sort of stuff. There was one point where, because I, I have a number of things under option, not just Love, Death, and Robots, but I have uh, a number of novels that are in, in uh, 
development for film and television. And at one point, somebody asked me, you know, a question about one of the uh, things under option. And I actually had to check with my lawyer to see whether or not I could answer that question without crossing a picket line. Um, Because it was important for me not to just inadvertently do something that would undermine um, what they're trying to do, which is basically secure a future for humans, you know, writing for film and television. It's been frustrating, you know, because like I said, I have so many things under development, but if the worst case scenario is I'm a little frustrated that my projects are basically on pause, then I'm getting off extremely easy because their worst case scenario is they don't have jobs. And I'm more than happy to be like, take all the time you need to make this strike work. You know, I'm not going to starve while you work out an equitable work arrangement. Well, speaking of that, an earlier comment about ChatGPT, there's been some some memes on the internet that I kind of agree with that all of this AI is really plagiarism. It's an interesting discussion. I mean, the thing about it is the question becomes, how does scraping text from the internet differ from when I read and I internalize my idols, you know, stylistic tics and all of that sort of stuff. And the answer of it comes down to, quite simply, there's a consciousness behind one and there's not a consciousness behind the other. Uh, Ted Chiang, who is a tremendous science fiction writer, made the very prescient point that AI is a misnomer. It's the, what we are seeing at this point is not artificial intelligence. What it is, is applied statistics. Those are his words, and I happen to agree with it. Um, that all these algorithms and all these formulas and all stuff like that are not looking for creativity per se. They are looking for, given the parameters that they are given to start outputting text, what is the most logical path statistically from there? In the short term, you can get stuff that, you know, on a sentence level looks great, on a paragraph level looks acceptable, and the further you go along, looks harder and harder, looks less and less like an actual uh, human wrote it. And the people, and people are very much of the idea of, well, that's going to get, you know, harder and harder to tell the difference between the two. But I don't know that that's necessarily, that's necessarily the truth. Again, there's lots of writing that is, that is basically replacement level. Like if I'm writing an email that where all I literally have to do, you know, is say, yes, that's great. Thank you very much. Then quite obviously a prompt uh, can do that just by me clicking on something. But if I have to go into detail about like, for example, for the cover of Starter Villain, where there's a cat on the cover and we had lots and lots of comments about what sort of cat that we wanted and how we wanted it and why we wanted it and all of that sort of stuff. Um, there's no possible way that I am going to be able to, you know, go into my email and put in, put a prompt that says how much I want the cat to be this, right? And then have it write something cognizant that I won't have to edit and require just as much effort to edit as it would have been just to write the whole thing in the first place. And then the question of plagiarism, uh, you know, comes down with the scraping. It's just pulling everything down and just putting it into a big database. It's not plagiarism in the sense of that it's word for word, but it is definitely the sense of all that 
ChatGPT or any of those things uh, knows is how to look for the most likely next thing. And sometimes it will use particular blocks and sometimes it will do a whole bunch of stuff. Again, there's no thought behind it. It is just literally blocks of text and blocks of words. And if you are asking it specifically to do it in a style of a particular author or a particular painter, if you're doing the art sort of thing, you know, then it becomes a lot, a lot different. We don't necessarily ask people to teach us for free, right? Even if you get a free education for, uh, by going to a public school, uh, somebody's taxes are paying for the teacher. If you go to college, your professors who are teaching you how to do stuff are getting paid. You have to buy your textbooks. You have to do all of this sort of stuff. There is a stream of commerce that is involved to compensate the people who are teaching you. With a lot of the AI, the scraping comes with no benefit to the people who have taught. And taught is not exactly the right word here because, again, that's the issue of intelligence. But what it comes down to is the information that has been gleaned, that has literally been scraped, did not come with a uh, commensurate compensation to those who offered it up. And they often didn't even know they were uh, offering it up. I know uh, from apparently that a lot of my books have been scraped for artificial intelligence, right? And one part of me is like, good luck trying to you know have chat GPT right like me. But the other part of me is like, no, if in fact uh, someone's going to be able to output something that is meant to sound like me, then the question is, the way that they sound like me is because they scraped all of my books and they're doing statistical right. analysis and that. And I'm like, don't I deserve as the provider of that stuff, which is under copyright, I do own that copyright, do I not deserve compensation? And who decides how much? Because I guarantee you 100% that the people who have created the applied statistics that are doing this don't want to pay me a whole lot, right? That's the whole point. So there are lots of, there's lots of questions. I'm not worried personally that I am going to be replaced by an artificial intelligence generator of scalzy text. I am, <laughs> I am 54 years old. And I have enough of a name that people will probably continue through retirement age to want to buy the actual John Scalzi books, right? So I'm not worried about myself starving. But I am concerned that my daughter, who is a very good writer, that she will not have the same opportunities to write and to experience the field of writing in ways that that I did. And to some extent, that's just, this is a factor of the age. You know, somebody who's coming up as a writer right now will not experience coming up as a writer as I did 30 years ago. I started work in newspapers. There are much fewer opportunities to come up in journalism these days than it did when I I was there. The way that I became a writer uh, is not necessarily a path that's going to be open to someone today. So that sort of change is inevitable. But the question becomes whether or not a bunch of people want to take out the creative aspect of humanity essentially as, and make it a subscription service. And if you are going to do that, then we need to build a, a society that allows for all the people who are displaced to find something else to do. We can't all work at McDonald's, right? 
and we can't all, you know, and we can't all uh, be doing menial jobs that pay uh, $12 an hour or something like that. You, you have to find something for people to do. And you also have to acknowledge that uh, the creative aspect of humanity is something that we want to continue to do. So it's all a mess. It will all get sorted. And I think that humans are going to continue doing what they're, what they're, uh, have been doing for millennia and creating. But we need to also recognize that there's a lot of people who think that what we do as writers, as artists, as musicians is literally the equivalent of pushing a button in a machine and having something output. And I would argue that not if you really want the stuff that you're going to remember. No, you can't, you, you can't just, we don't just extrude art. It does take humanity to do that. And uh, I think an example of that is how people started to extrude superhero movies. And then along comes Oppenheimer and Barbie. And these are creative works. Well, I think what happened there is film and TV have always found the thing that is going to be the money generator. The superhero movies of the last 15 years are like the action films of the 80s. Um, they're sure. like the musicals of the 30s and 40, or 40s. They're like the That's biblical my... episodes of the 50s. They find a money spinner and everybody gets onto that until such a point where it doesn't work anymore. The fascinating thing as someone who has a little bit of history of film is that era where the musical began to fail. Hello, Dolly, Paint Your Wagon, all these big budget musicals and the, and the road show sort of uh, release schedules uh, that they did to support them, to keep them going for years and years and years, just stopped working. And they were massive flops. And that created a era of film, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, where all the movie studios were just literally throwing anything at the wall to see what would stick. And that's where we got the era of Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas and De Palma and you know all of the, the USC uh, film school nerds who defined cinema in, in, the, in the 70s. Part of that was just panic that their money spinners were not working anymore and they were waiting to find out what happened next. The early 90s with the collapse of the action film. And then all of a sudden you have people like Quentin Tarantino and all the indie directors that came out of that. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, another example, is another example of we don't know it's going to work. Shove it all up. We just came out of a really interesting era where the streaming services were like, we'll just throw money at anything. Right uh, now that spigot is being turned off in a sort of really aggressive manner. But at the same time, the superhero films are not working the way that they were before. Uh, and now people are looking at Oppenheimer and Barbie, Barbenheimer, uh, as an example of there is an appetite for uh, film. There is an excuse to get people out into the movie theaters if you give them good, interesting stories that go places that they don't expect them to go. So the ebb and flow of that is really fascinating. I think that the superhero movies aren't going to go away. You know, Disney is too invested for that. But is it going to be the same sort of engine? No, it's just going to be part of the mix. And what comes next? We don't know yet. And that's what's super exciting 
both as a creative person and as a viewer. And you could say the same thing with publishing. Publishing goes through eras. Um, you can do the same with music. The rock era has definitively sort of gone under. It's uh, the R&B and hip hop has, uh, you know, ruled for a long time. But now in the last year, uh, country of all things has been uh, popping up on the on the top of the charts. And what does it all mean? And I don't know, but it's sort of it's exciting. John Scalzi, Darter Villain was finished probably over a year ago, which means you must be very close to another book now. Um, is it science fiction? Is it part of a series? Anything? I'm always writing a new book. I have a 13 book contract with Tor Books, um, and I'm only th- about in book six or book seven of that. So I have several more to go. And um, it is another science fiction book. It is another standalone. It is also contemporary as well. And it will also be like Kaiju and like Starter Villain, sort of a very high concept thing. I don't want to say what it is yet um, because I am uh, still in the process of writing it and I don't want to give away too much. I will say that this morning I was just sitting at my desk uh, and the first line of the book popped into my brain. And it's a perfect first line, which means that I have to go back, fit that first line in. But what a great first line. I was so proud of myself. It's like, oh, this was great. Why didn't you think about six months ago? I got it now, but I'm always writing something new. And I kind of love that. I love that my life is you get to write fun stuff and people look forward to reading it. You've been listening to an interview with John Scalzi, whose latest novel is Starter Villain. And your blog, which is now a very famous blog, what is it by name and where can people find it? It is called Whatever. If you type uh, whatever into Google, it will take it to you very quickly. Otherwise, you can find it at whatever.scalzi.com. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.